Okay, so tonight we're going to be in Psalm chapter 33 in our study, and we've come to a psalm tonight that has no title and no author. And so we call these psalms orphanic psalms because they're kind of like orphans. We don't know who their daddy is, right? But I think we may have a decent idea. I'll talk a little bit more about that as we move through it. But there's 39 of these orphanic psalms in the book of Psalms, and and Psalm 33 is one of them. Uh, If you're going to give this psalm a theme, I would say it's simply this. God is sovereign. We're going to see that very clearly as we move through the text tonight of Psalm 33. Our God is a sovereign God. And we're going to see this reality in four primary ways in Psalm 33. The first way we're going to see it is we're going to see God's sovereignty in historical creation. And then we're going to see God's sovereignty in the nations. We're going to see God's sovereignty in individuals. And then finally, we're going to see his sovereignty over salvation. So God is sovereign over all of these things. And therefore, in light of God's sovereignty, the writer of this psalm begins his song here in Psalm 33 appropriately with praise. Let's read it. Psalm 33, starting in verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Verse 10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their work. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Verse 22, let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Amen. What a fantastic psalm that is. And and I just want to kind of give you a bit of an overview here before we go into it verse by verse, just to sort of maybe get the big picture of what's going on here. But in verse 1, we see the command to praise the Lord. Okay, that's a command in verse 1, and it's to the upright, and why are they given that command? Because praise 
is beautiful. For it is beautiful, the writer of this psalm says. And in verse 2, we see with what to praise the Lord. He says, praise Him with stringed instruments and with melody. Okay, those two things. In verse 3, we see how to praise the Lord. We are to praise God skillfully, and we are to do it with joy. Okay, so don't leave either one of those out because both are super critical components to praise, both skill and joy. In verses 4 and 5, we see why we praise the Lord. It's because both His Word and His work are true. And the earth is full of His goodness. So all of these things are great reasons to be praising the Lord, I might add. And then on down in verses 6 and 9, it's where we really begin to see the sovereignty of God come out in this psalm. Verses 6 through 9, we see the Creator is sovereign over His creation. Okay? Verses 10 through 12, we see that the Lord is sovereign over the nations. Verses 13 through 15, we see that the Lord is sovereign over individuals. And then in the last few verses, verses 16 through 22, through 22 rather, we see that the Lord is sovereign over salvation. And we're going to flesh that out just a, a little deeper as we move through this psalm. Because there's a lot to learn here from this passage of Scripture. But I don't want us to skim too quickly past the big picture either here, okay? Because here's the big picture. The big picture is this. God is sovereign. Okay? It's that simple. But sometimes we miss that, and I don't want us to miss that, because that's the simple big picture here in Psalm 33. God is sovereign, and righteous people are commanded to praise Him. Okay, That's the big picture. That's the bottom line of Psalm 33. So truth claim number one is this. God is sovereign. That's the truth. This is a statement of fact. Okay, It's not a suggestion. It's not up for debate. It's settled truth. Right? The overarching theme of this entire psalm is that God is in fact sovereign. Okay? And so the first response to this truth claim for us is what? Praise. That's how we react to that. That's how we respond to that. Those who recognize the sovereignty of God will rightly respond to Him in praise. Who are these people? Well, according to this psalm here, these people are those who recognize and respond to this truth by hoping in His mercy, verse 18. These people are those who wait on the Lord, verse 20, and those who have trusted in His holy name, verse 21. And so those who respond to the truth of God in this way will in turn find hope and mercy in the sovereignty of God, not fear, not punishment, hope and mercy and so also as we look at this psalm prophetically which we're not going to delve too deep into but there is a prophetic element to this psalm i believe and if you look at that i think you'll see that there's going to come a time when the peace uh, god's peace will come to israel right and king jesus will rule and he will reign in sovereignty over his kingdom and so we see a little bit of end times prophecy here in this psalm but I don't want to focus on that tonight. I want to look at this verse by verse and then look at how it applies to us today. So verse 1, it says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Now some of you may have already noticed um, some of the similarities here between the last verse of Psalm 32, the psalm that we studied last week, and the first verse of Psalm 33. Okay, they're very similar, and both call upon the righteous 
to rejoice. And so my guess is, even though this psalm doesn't give the author, it's not explicit in the text, it never tells us that plainly, it was probably written by David. That would be my best guess anyway, right? Because it is sandwiched in between two other psalms that were written by David, and Psalm 33, in a way, seems to be sort of a continuation of Psalm 32. But that's not the point either. That's not our focus here. Uh, We want to focus on the righteous and what they are to do in verse 1. They are to find joy in the Lord. Righteous people are to find joy in the Lord and to rejoice in Him, the Word says. So the truth is for a righteous person, which is basically another way of saying someone who has been made right before God, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, that's a righteous person, okay? For that person, joy cannot be found anywhere else except for in the Lord. You know, as Christians, I think if we're not careful, we can waste a whole lot of our time looking for and searching for temporary happiness. And that can easily be found in any number of places. If you want temporary happiness, you can find it. But eternal joy can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And beyond that, when God's people do praise Him, then the Word says something very interesting. It says that it's beautiful. I love that. When God's people praise Him, it's beautiful. Praise from the upright, praise from the righteous people, those who have been made right, it's absolutely beautiful. Now, some of you may be reading from a different translation. I just read from the New King James Version of the Bible. There are other translations out there who would render the word for beautiful as fitting. So your translation may say fitting. I don't think that's a bad translation at all. Actually, it's a very good translation because only God is fit to receive praise, right? And therefore, it is fitting that we praise Him. So if you want to be beautiful among the symphony of heaven, so to speak, then give praise to your Lord. It's fitting. Verse 2, praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Now, I believe, I'm not sure, you can check me on this, but I think this is the first time that we see musical instruments mentioned in the text of a psalm. Now, they've been mentioned in titles before. We know that. We've studied some of that, but not in the text, I don't think. And so this should enforce our belief that God loves music. I'm glad about that. I mean, I for one am very thankful that God loves music, okay? And not only that, he takes it a step further. He even likes stringed instruments. Uh, You know, stringed instruments have been a part of worship for thousands of years, thousands of years. Um, Some of the earliest instruments of praise, in fact, were stringed instruments. Now, my guitar only has six strings on it, and... That's way more than I can handle at times, right there. So I don't know what in the world I would do with an instrument of 10 strings. I have no idea how I would even handle that. But I want you to notice what these 10 strings are used for. To make melody to him. That's why we have them. That's why they're there. Our instruments are melody makers for God. Okay? That's why they're there. My grandpa told me years ago, he said, if you ever tell the Lord that you want to play guitar for him, then brother, you better keep it tuned up. 
And so I've always tried to do that because I want that instrument to be used for his glory, to praise him. And I believe that's what the author of this psalm is talking about here. But I also think that this is really good instruction for every worship leader that's out there and every praise team member that's out there. This should serve as a constant reminder that your praise should be beautiful, verse 1, and fit for the Lord. The instrument that you have, the talent that you've been given, whether it's your voice or an ability to play an instrument, believer is an instrument for God. And it's to be used for His glory. It's not used, in other words, to be trendy. Okay? The sounds that come out of your instrument, meaning the melody, if you will, should be to Him. And it should be for Him. That's to say every single note that is either sang or played instrumentally, instrumentally belongs to God. Every note. It all belongs to him because only he is worthy of that, right? And let me just offer one more piece of advice to all of the worship leaders out there. I think it's critically important that as a worship leader, you tune your heart before you tune your harp, right? Before you get up on stage, before you lead anyone in worship, you need to have gone to the throne of grace yourself. You need to have tuned your heart before you tune your instrument. Focus on the condition of your heart before you focus on crafting a song or leading a group in worship or whatever it is. Focus on the condition of your heart before God. Verse 3. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. I can't tell you how many times I've used this verse in trying to help churches transition from old style worship to new style worship. I bring them to verses like this, and there are many. Sing to him a what? New song. That's right. We can sing new songs, and that's actually very biblical. Uh, William McDonald points this out. He says, this new song that's being referred to here is actually a song of redemption. Amen. I agree with that. Because in Psalm 32, what was that about? That was an instruction on forgiveness, wasn't it? That's what Psalm 32 was about. So we see the forgiveness. And now here in in Psalm 33, we see the song of redemption after the forgiveness. Christ makes all things new, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and Revelation 21, verse 5. And we're going to be singing these new songs, by the way, these new songs of redemption all throughout eternity. Okay? Revelation 5.9, again, Revelation 14.3, talking about new songs that will be sang in eternity. So as New Testament believers and benefactors, really, of the new covenant in Christ Jesus, then we should welcome new songs of praise and worship into our churches. Okay, These are good things. We should never, ever let ourselves be bound up by man-made traditions, Okay, while at the same time, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of getting trendy. Okay, We don't want to go to either side of this pendulum. right? In other words, when it comes to worship, be smart. Be intentional. There are far too many worshipers who are not intentional about their worship. Be an intentional worshiper. Be biblical about how you worship. And then lastly, be creative. 
Be creative in how you worship. Our God is a creator God, is he not? And he creates, and he is uh, very amazing in what he does to create and how he creates. And so being made in his image, we should be creative in our worship. Now, I think it's important to remember so that we don't get bogged down when we're talking about new songs. We want to hold on to the great hymns of the faith, right? I mean, there's some really great doctrine in there, but I'm here to tell you not enough people will admit there's also some really bad doctrine in some of them, okay? So we're not singing a song because it's either new or old. We want to sing it because it's true, because it's biblical. And I think some people need to understand that all of the great hymns of the faith, all of the great songs of the church were not written 400 years ago. Okay, there's been some really good ones written recently. There's also been some really bad ones. So we've got to be careful with these things, okay? Sing to him a new song, the word says. And remember, the same Holy Spirit is in us. The same Holy Spirit is in songwriters today that was in the great hymn writers of old. Okay, so it's okay to write new songs. It's okay to sing those new songs to the Lord. But I want you to notice the caveat here in verse 3. I want you to notice this very simple exhortation. He says, play skillfully. A person who has been appointed to lead worship in the church should be skillful at their instrument and they should be skilled in the word of God. Okay? They need skill in both of these areas. They don't need to be a novice in either one. Okay? Remember the temple musicians back in 1 Chronicles chapter 25 verse 1, they were all skilled. Okay? So they were trained to be musicians in the temple. And this is why as a worship leader, a former worship leader for many years, I would often interview people or even audition people before I would give them an official invite to be on the team. Uh, that's not to be rude or, or mean or anything like that, but the Word of God demands a certain level of ability. Okay, It, it demands a certain level of physical ability, and it demands a certain level of spiritual ability or knowledge of the Word as well, both of those things. Okay. So we need to be skillful. It says to play skillfully with a shout of joy. And so you might be saying, well, I get the physical part of playing skillfully, but shout of joy, I mean, what's so spiritual about that? Well, remember back in verse 1 of this psalm, joy is in a righteous person, is it not? This person is upright before God. Okay, so this tells us that God is not just looking for the person who has the most talent. Not at all. He's looking for the person whose heart is in the right place and who is dedicated to playing skillfully and has a certain skillful understanding of the word. He's upright. He's righteous. He or she, right? Why? So that his praise will be the most beautiful and it will be the most fitting. Okay? Too many people slack off in their worship and give God the leftovers. We need to give him our best. We need to be skilled in worship. We need to be skilled in the word. And don't just give him the leftovers. Give him your best. Be intentional. Be smart. Be biblical. Be creative. Be assertive in your worship. But don't just leave it till the end. Like, be very intentional about coming before the Lord 
in worship. I think you'll be surprised at what the Lord might do in your life when you begin to get away with Him, you and Him, and sing praises to His name and pray to Him. Pray out loud. Sing out loud. Whatever it takes for you to get in that heart of worship before the Lord and give Him your best. Derek Kidner writes this. He says, Note the call in that verse, verse 3. Note the call in verse 3 for freshness and skill as well as fervor. Three qualities rarely found together in religious music. Amen. He's exactly right. But how sad is that? I mean, look, Christian people are the most talented people on earth. They are. Christian people are the most creative people on all the earth. We have, of all people, Christians have the most to write about. We have the most to sing about, don't we? You know, I've often said the most talented musicians and the most talented vocalists that you will find in all the world will be singing or playing somewhere in a church on Sunday morning. And it's true. I mean, I've seen it too much in my life. I've seen way too much talent on stages of churches to think otherwise. We played at a church one time in Rolla, Missouri one night, and they had a saxophone player in their worship team, and I kid you not, he could have played note for note with Kenny G. I've never seen anybody play a saxophone like him before. And I've seen it over and over with piano players and vocalists that will just blow your mind. The talent that is on the stage in a church on Sunday morning is the best in the world. So let me ask you a question. Think about that. What I just said about the most talented people in the world being on a stage leading worship on Sunday mornings. So why in the world do we ever let Christian media promote songs that are so bad theologically and so boring musically? Why do we let them get away with that? Why do we let that happen when the Christian community is filled, again, with the most talented people in all the world? Guys, we can do better than that. We should do better than that. Our God is worthy of much more than that. He is worthy of our best. Verse 4, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. So, the Lord's word is right, and his works are truth. Therefore, what's the result? Well, we sing what is right, and we play what is right, because the word of God is right. All of God's work is done in truth, and therefore, so should ours be. All of our work should be done in truth. Matthew Henry said this. He said, Thankful praise is the breath, and listen to this, the language of holy joy. Religious songs are proper expressions of thankful praise. Notice that word proper. He goes on to say, His word is right, and therefore we are only in the right when we agree with it. Amen. Our response to the righteousness of God and His Word should also be right and true. Our praise should reflect God's truth. In other words, it should be right, shouldn't it? So listen, be careful. Be very careful what you sing back to God. Be careful what songs you play back to God when you're worshiping. Make absolutely sure that they line up with the truth that you see written in his word. Derek Kidner again writes this. He says, His word and his works are inseparable. 
for his words are never empty. That's exactly right. God's words are never empty, and neither should ours be either. So be careful what you sing back to the Lord. Verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Now I want you to notice the holiness of God here, okay? The word tells us that he loves two things, both righteousness and justice. God is right and God is just, isn't he? But I've noticed that there is a growing problem, especially in mainstream Christian worship today. Maybe some of you people have noticed that too. Because much of the worship music that we hear today that's being written is based on one of three things. And you can hear it in, in most of them. But most of the worship music today is based on either emotion or it's based on trends or it's based on marketability. Okay, One of those three things you'll probably find in a large majority of the worship music today. Not all of it. Obviously, like I said before, there are some very good songs out there. So what they ask, though, is things like this. They ask, well, does this song that we're writing elicit emotion? If it does, then it's a good song, right? How about this? Is this song trendy? Maybe we need to pull one of those words over there from one of those trendy songs and use it in our song, and it'll make it trendy. You see it happen all the time. And then you ask, well, will this song sell? Does that sound like a biblical model for writing worship songs? No, not at all. I just don't want you to be fooled into thinking a worship song is biblical based on its popularity, okay? Like many, unfortunately, make the mistake of doing, obviously, or they wouldn't sell so many records, but just bear with me for a second. I want to get this out of my system, okay? God's love is not reckless, okay? Let me give you a biblical example of God's love. God's love is eternal. God's love is unconditional. God's love is sacrificial. God's love is very intentional. And God's love is available to everybody. Guys, there is not one single thing that is reckless about God's love. Give me one verse of scripture that tells me otherwise and I'll change my mind right now. But you can't. And that's my point. Here's another one. God's grace is not scandalous. That's another trendy word that you hear in a lot of these worship songs. Let me give you a, a biblical example of what God's grace actually is. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is abundant. God's grace is humbling. God's grace is utterly overwhelming. It is undeserving and it's available to everybody. There's absolutely nothing that is scandalous about God's grace. Again, give me one scripture, just one, that would prove me otherwise and I'll change my mind, but you can't do it because they don't exist. Guys, this is why several years ago, I started reading scripture before every worship song that I lead. 
I started doing this a long time ago, long before I came here. And the reason I started doing that was because too many songs were beginning to get weird theologically, right? And unfortunately, it was just being accepted by the church. It was like, no big deal. They just knew song. It's popular. Let's play it. But I wanted the church to know that what we are singing should be truth, right? We need to be able to support what we sing with the truth of Scripture. And so I started reading Scripture before every song that we sing. One, to make sure to my own heart that I would have to check it out first, right? To know that this is biblical, because if it's not, then we're not going to sing it. But here's the deal. God is not honored. He is not worshipped and he is not praised when we sing lies back to him. That is not God honoring. So let's love and let's sing what God loves and wants us to sing. Let's sing what is right and let's sing what is just and let's write new songs with these truths in them. Truths that we find here in the Bible. Okay, Truths that accurately reflect who God really is. Not just trendy catchphrases that are going to help sell more records, get more clicks, or get the song played on Christian radio or whatever. Okay, Let's get back to the Bible and let's write some amazing songs. We have the talent to do it in the church. So let's write the best songs for our good and great God. And let's stop offering up these trendy, flimsy, weird, bad songs. Okay? Rant over. I'll move on. But hopefully you get the point. The writer of this psalm here, in Psalm 33, gives us some really good insight into what really good songwriting actually looks like. Okay? and captures the essence of God in his creation, being sovereign over his creation. He says, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Absolutely. Absolutely. Find the goodness of God in the world around you, believer, and write about that. Write about the truths that you find in Scripture, and let's worship with songs like that that bring him the most glory. So the psalmist begins in verses 6 through 9 to write his song of sovereignty like this. He says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So here, obviously, we see the sovereignty of God over his creation, don't we? But I think we should take special note here of the absolute power of his word. Did you see that? By his word, the heavens were made. He spoke and it was done. So if God's words are that powerful, and they are, so that they can actually bring something out of nothing, then why in the world would we ever be so flippant and lazy and disrespectful that we would sing twisted versions of his word back to him in praise? Why would we do that? I just don't understand that. Guys, truth matters. Truth absolutely matters. Let's not forget who God is. Our God speaks things into existence. That's who we're worshiping. Therefore, the word says, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
Amen. Every time you inhale breath into your lungs, you are breathing God's air. By His grace, mind you. Stand in awe of that. Every time you go out to the ocean, whether you go whale watching or tide pooling or fishing or whatever it is, you are standing in the very place where God has gathered those waters together by His Word. Stand in awe of that. Be amazed by that. And let these truths reflect your praise to your God. I think we should notice something else that's very important here about what God does with His words here. I like how J. Vernon McGee points this out. He says, Notice how God used his voice to create, not destroy. Isn't that great? Guys, God has given you a voice, so be careful how you use it. Verses 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. So in these verses here, 10 through 12, we see the sovereignty of God over the nations. Okay? Here we see the difference between the words of man and the words of God. There's a huge difference, isn't there? The counsel of the nations have absolutely no effect. However, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. It reminded me of James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16 which says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The nations, I think, would be wise to seek the counsel of the Lord. Because he just told us that our counsel basically amounts to nothing. But his words, his counsel, they stand forever. So we need to heed the warning of the Lord to the nations. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 and 16, verse 25 say that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So here's the deal. The plans of God's heart for the nations will stand, won't they? Because God will see to it. God will see to it that they stand. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I hope America is listening. Now the people he has chosen as his own inheritance, he says, that would be referring to the people Israel here in this context. That's a reference to the nation of Israel. But I do believe the blessing here extends to every nation who proclaims the God of the Bible as Lord. Okay, so if a nation wants blessing, then God needs to be that nation's Lord, right? Now in verses 13 through 15, we see the scope of heaven sort of narrow down its focus onto the individual. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. So again, here we see the sovereignty of God over all of humanity. Okay, The word says he looks 
from heaven. Then it says he sees every one of us. Then it tells us that he fashions our hearts. And then it goes on to say that he considers all of our works. Okay, so he looks, he sees, he fashions, he considers. Now, does this verse say that God has fashioned our hearts individually to either accept or reject him? No, it does not. In other words, is this verse teaching that God has fashioned some people to believe and others to not believe? Absolutely not. If that were the case, then what would there be any need for God to consider? What would there be left for him to consider, right? In other words, except for his own determinations. That would be his work, not ours. And the word says he considers all, all of our work. Scripture says he considers their work. Look, I think it's important here when you come to passages like this not to get bogged down in the language, right? Just read it like it's written and believe that. Try to understand the plain meaning of a text first, okay? And always understand, at least effort to understand, a text within its context, okay? That's very important in interpreting Scripture. So here is what these verses are actually saying. They say this, simply, God looks down from heaven, and he sees you, he made you, and he is taking your works, meaning the way that you live your life, under consideration. Okay? I like how Pastor David Guzik says it. He says, God made us one by one, each with our own particular physical, mental, emotional makeup, including the allowance of our weakness and sinful inclinations. As our maker, he has the right of inspection. So he considers all of our works. Amen. Verses 16 and 17. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. So here, the writer of this psalm reminds us that deliverance can only come from the Lord God. Okay? Even the mightiest of men though they might even be assembled in an army, okay, or together in a military, even the mightiest of men in military fashion are only a vain hope for safety, okay? Only the God of heaven's armies can rescue a soul from death or a nation from destruction, okay? Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, so when the Lord looks down from heaven, verse 13, remember that, he keeps his eye on those who fear him and on those who hope in his mercy. Do you remember last time when we were in Psalm 32? Psalm 32, verse 8, told us that God said, he said, I will guide you with my eye. Remember talking about that last week? So here's the deal. If you fear him, and if you are hoping in his mercy, then he will guide you. That's what we take from this. He will guide you, and he will guide you all the way through this life into the next. Right? Spurgeon said it like this. They who fear God need not fear anything else. Let them fix their eye of faith on him, and his eye of love will always rest upon them. 
That's absolutely right. Verse 19, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. So again, if you are a follower, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have nothing to fear except the Lord your God, right? And his promises are to deliver you from death. What a great promise. But it's even more than that. And if necessary, in order to accomplish his purposes in this world, through your life, he'll even keep you alive during a famine. Jesus said it this way in John 10.10. He said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Amen. Listen to what theologian John Trapp said. He said, freedom from troubles he promiseth not, but deliverance in due time he assureth them. <laughs> now, he may talk like Yoda, but he's exactly right. Okay, your deliverance will not come from the strength of man, but from the hand of God each and every time. Okay, and he will keep you alive for his glory, and he will do it in his perfect timing. You can trust that. You can believe that. Remember Psalm 31 verse 15? We studied this already. David wrote, my times are in your hands. So wait, believer, your deliverer is coming. Verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. I want you to notice something. It's not my soul, but our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and he is our shield, right? We, us, his church, his people are in need of help. Therefore, what does he do? He gives us one another to wait behind his shield together, right? Our deliverer is coming and help us on the way. Death has absolutely no power over us. Famine has no power among us because the eye of the Lord is upon us. So here's the deal. Settle one another's soul while we wait for the Lord together, safely behind his shield. Look, don't let yourself get all wound up in the craziness of the world around us. It's always going to be crazy, okay? Don't get wound up in that. Stay together. Stay with other believers. Stay in fellowship. Don't isolate yourself. Okay? Stay in fellowship. Stay in church. His shield is around us. Collectively, isn't it? His church, His people. So don't run outside the safety of that shield. In other words, stay connected to the body of Christ. Verse 21. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Now remember, again, where the joy in your heart comes from, verse 1. It comes from having a relationship with God. The righteous people, those who have been made right by God, have joy. How? Because we have trusted in His holy name, verse 21. So if you want joy in this time of uncertainty that we're living in, and it is uncertain, if you want joy during this time, then trust in His holy name. If you want a heart that's filled with joy from God instead of filled with fear from the world, then what do you do? Trust in His holy name. 
Adam Clark said this. He said, here is the fruit of our confidence. Our souls are always happy because we have taken our portion in God. Amen. I would take it a step further, though, and say God is not only our portion. He is the whole. Amen. Verse 22. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Guys, the hope of every Christian is the mercy of God. That's our hope. What a beautiful little prayer to end this psalm. Years ago, my best friend and I had a music ministry, and we had a song that we would sing that we had written together. It was called Mercy. And at the end of that song, while I was playing a little piece on the guitar, Uh, my friend, Jimmy Anderson, he was our singer. He would sing the last few verses of Psalm 33. And we would end up by singing, let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. I love that prayer. It's meant so much to me over the years. But it should mean so much to each and every Christian. Because what else do we have? but the mercy of God to hope in. But in him, we have all that we ever, ever need. What a way to end a prayer. I couldn't possibly say it any better, so I'm not going to say any more. So I just want to wrap up Psalm 33 in the way that the psalmist did here with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful to have been able to spend this time together in your word and in your presence before your throne of grace listening learning worshiping and praying praising hoping in your mercy Lord we thank you for that mercy that is greater than our sin thank you for your grace Thank you for your love. Thank you for the blood of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who paid it all and then rose from the grave so that we could have hope in him of eternal life, a life unending, where we can sing new songs of praise all throughout eternity, worshiping and thanking and praising for your glory, for your mercy. That's so undeserved, God. But we have no hope apart from it. So Lord, help us to just get our hearts right. Forgive us where we failed you. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our secret sins. You know our pet sins, the one we like, but we don't want anybody else to know about. You even know about that one. So would you forgive us of that? Would you help us to get serious about our faith? Would you help us to get serious about our worship? To not take it lightly. We're not just singing words into the air. We're not just singing phrases. We want to sing truth, eternal truth back to you for your glory. We want to give you our best. We don't want to come half-hearted into your throne room anymore. 
Lord, we want to be wholehearted and we want to be broken before you. We want to be real. We want to be genuine. But we want to be truthful. We want it to be right. So help us to do that. Help us to be that kind of worshiper. And the times that we live in, Lord, are obviously uncertain and they're changing and all of that, but we know that you haven't changed. We know that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that your word has not changed. We know that it's been settled in heaven. And we know that because you have made us right through the blood of your Son, that heaven is our home. And that's not going to change. We have so much to be thankful for. There's so much work yet left to do before you come. There are so many out there today who don't know you. They don't have a relationship with you. Help us to not get too busy for them. Help us to not walk past them or be distracted by them, whatever. Help us to always have the gospel ready on our lips. Help us to be loving and to love people to Christ, to take the good news of the gospel to the people who need it all over our community and all over this world. Would you help us to do that, Lord? Please continue to build your church. Continue to spring up revivals all over our country, Lord, how we need it. We're dependent upon that, God. But we know that our time is in your hands. So help us to make the best use of it before you take us home. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. Amen.